Welcome back to this episode, When Push Comes to Shop. Today, we are delighted to have chilled Mama Kathy here, who is a doula and a perinatal practitioner. So hi, Kathy. Welcome. And if you hi, Carly. By telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey and what you're up to. Hi, Carly. Thank you very much for having me on When Push Comes to Shelf. Uh, I feel such a great podcast. So many interesting people you've had on and topics that you've covered. I'm a mum of five children. So my eldest is five and my youngest is 10. And so I have been supporting pregnant women and families and postnatally um, for a few decades now <laughs> um, and my sort of interest came from deciding to have a well really wanting a home birth my first and being put off it having a home birth my second and joining home birth support group this is back in 1997 um and then moving house and setting up one locally. So I live near Luton in Bedfordshire, just off the M1. Um, if you know Toddington service station, we're just up the hill in the village of Toddington. And I did lots of volunteering with the NCT, various different roles and attended conferences. And so really sparked my passion to support families at this time and to make information more accessible um, and one of the first things I did because as we were talking before there's an awful lot of, lot of knowledge out there that other people are holding on to and they're just telling us just do this and if we ask questions about it then we're seen as being awkward mm. but these are our children we are parents we are going to be we're going to be caring for our um, children and making decisions for them and this needs to be empowered from from the start. Mm. I found I was I, I'm a feminist and I was doing campaigning and um, marches and then became pregnant and found that I have never been so patronised in my life. I was called good girl and and suddenly all the things that I had had fought for just seemed to be disappearing um and it was almost as if to me it felt like that it was antenatal care was almost promised like a talisman mm. if you're a good girl and attend all your appointments you um and yeah does that <laughs> ring bell attend all your appointments do what you're told we will reward you with a healthy baby and they use this word healthy baby um and i big believer that you can't have a healthy baby without a healthy mum parent yeah. and you were it was almost as if any questioning of it was therefore you were not being a good mother and you ran the risk of not getting this reward at the end mm. and even things that seemed really small seemed you couldn't question anything and I had my first when I was first pregnant I lived in Portsmouth and there they only did the 12 week scan they didn't do the 20 week scan mm -hmm. then I moved by the time I had number two I was living um nearer Winchester and there they only did the 20 week scan and not the 12 week scan and after that recommendations changed and now everywhere offers both but it made me think what was the why if, was there this difference yeah 
yes, why are they different? And if if one was so important, why weren't they offering that one? You know, why? How could two places offer offer different the different, different scans? But still, yeah, so they're um, just as important, and you have to go to them. Yes, yes, and things like your blood tests or being weighed, um, and all these things. I started to question uh, how relevant. What difference would it make to me? What difference would it make to my pregnancy, my birth? What would I do with the information? Did I, because we think these things like going to a scan or something is all, we see it from our point of view, oh, it'd be nice to, to bond with the baby or to hear the baby get reassurance. We don't think about what the point of the scan is from the medical profession. And the medical profession have quite clear um, things that they want from these appointments but if they're not shared you don't realize that you then go to these appointments thinking it's just going to be reassuring and then later find out oh actually it's not reassuring there's this this and this you know questioning the dates that you're given telling your midwife is my... that is yeah. a bugbear of mine estimation es estimated due dates yeah having a that almost a standard row with the midwife with my third and by then I was learning all sorts of things. So I didn't I didn't go to the doctor. I found you didn't have to go to a doctor. You could go straight to your midwife. Um, I had decided I didn't want scans. So I, I, I was really upset how much my little ones, particularly my first, how much she had jumped in the womb with the scan. And we don't think about that it, it is sound energy. We might not hear it, but often babies react quite vigorously to scans and not less they try and move away even in pregnancy with the Doppler and midwives will say oh they didn't like they're moving away if I can't find them every time I move it the baby's moved away and maybe there's a reason yeah. anyway so I'd I'd left it late I was 17 weeks before I contacted a midwife and she came into the book here and I she said oh Jess she got out her wheel to work out the due date and I said well you don't need to do that because I've gone through the calendar I've marked all the weeks off I know exactly mm. how far you know I've counted the 40 weeks because the wheel is just an approximate way to approximate yeah and it can be out can't it it's not yeah. a calibrated and she said oh no I'll do it my way and I went but your way is only approximation to get to my way yeah but she, and it was like <laughs> not not understanding she was not understanding the reasons behind what she was doing mm. and so really that's that's where I started being awkward <laughs> and I also I had supported you know heard lots of birth stories supported lots of people and I was hearing all these stories where they were not being listened to or not being shared the information that they didn't know what some of these tests and things were for. They were just going through the motions. We very much feel like we have to, don't we? That's what we're told to do, so that's what we do. And there's no question. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's missing a trick because we then, as a society, we, we then expect people to go home with their babies and care for their babies but we haven't let them have any agency or given them any power to take care of their babies while they've been pregnant. Um, and particularly dads and partners, because they are just totally excluded. And then we complain that parents are always taking their children to the doctors. Yeah. And you go, well, <laughs> if you have, you've told them for the last 
nine odd months not to trust themselves, not to listen to, you know. It's so, so true. Yeah. Yes. And then I, I started, I set up pregnancy relaxation classes, mostly because people said to me I'd had two straightforward births um, and I hadn't even used gas and air. That wasn't the plan with number one. Number one, I planned to use gas and air. And so people were saying, we need to know what you do. By then, I was also with Ames as well. And so and just reading all I could, watching the birth stories on the telly. And and actually, can I tell you one story for this birth? Because I really think all people, all women need to see this, yes, need to hear about this story, because a lot is we spend a lot of time hearing about what we should do in giving birth and there's lots talked about you know it needs to be safe for the baby and we forget that it needs to be the mother needs to feel safe the pregnant person needs to feel safe and that that it was a a birth program on a cable channel and it was called babes in the wood and it was a birth center in in the new forest um it was filmed by Bernadette Boss and it followed women giving birth at the birth centre and this one woman it was her second baby she turned up at the birth centre she'd only been there 20 minutes and she was already bearing down already pushing now she'd had her first baby in hospital and this baby she was in in the pool but she'd obviously not necessarily used a birth pool before. Nobody talked to her about positions. So, and it was the shape of a bath, just a very big bath. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a modern one because this is a, a few years ago now. So she was lying in it as if she was in the bath. But of course, a bath, your shoulders stopped going down. So she was at her hands like that, holding onto the bath to stop herself oh, going her. under the water. So already she's got strain. And the midwife was shining a torch up her bottom and telling and encouraging her to push and wasn't looking at what the woman was doing and wasn't looking at the face and she was holding on to this and going and then the mid and midwives as you know that when you're pushing they're listening to the baby after every push because babies a lot of people don't realize that baby's heart rates do go down that normally uh-huh. during a contraction that's very normal it's that they need the heart rate needs to come back up after the contraction and it can show that baby's not doing very well if it takes a while for the baby's heart rate to come back after. So the midwife was listening in and going, oh, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm getting worried about this heart rate. I think you need to push more. And I'm thinking she's only been there 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, this isn't somebody you need to rush. But the woman was like, OK, going purple in the face. Now, you, you're a doula, Carly. You've been at purse. I've seen what happens when to the baby's heart rate as, rate as soon as yeah. somebody is told to hold their breath and push yeah. it just plummets um and the midwife but the midwife was not looking at the woman's face she was only looking at her bottom and fortunately another midwife came in because the midwife started saying oh, i think we're gonna have to take you out we're gonna have to transfer you and this poor woman was obviously getting really scared Unfortunately, another midwife came who obviously is a bit more experienced and suggested that maybe trying a different position. So got onto her hands and knees, onto her knees and leaning over the pool 
and but the first midwife still saying right you're going to have the next when the next contraction comes you're going to have to really push so she does and she gives it all her welly and nothing happens and so she said right I think we're going to have to get you out we're going to need to transfer you to um to Southampton General Hospital um and the two midwives turn away they turn away to get the trolley to bring it over and it's they literally don't have to take more than two paces so they're not oh, don't leave her for very long and they're not very far away but while they've turned their back and they no longer got pressure on her she's leaning on the side of the pool and she just goes i'm worried about the baby blah blah blah, 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 blah to her partner uh, her birth partner there and she lets out this stream of consciousness and worry and mm. boom there's the baby yeah and it's just like if only they'd left her alone and she, as soon as she didn't have the pressure on her and you see it with home births that don't seem to be going anywhere and they you know transfer happens they get and i never know it's the the large step into the ambulance or whether it's the fact that when they are in the ambulance they are no longer thinking about giving birth they're mm. just relaxing and waiting till they get and then they, there's no pressure on them to be pushing or dilating or anything while they're in the ambulance they don't have to be doing anything and boom by the time they arrive they're pushing they're a lot closer or they're yes, already yeah yes. they're already birthed on the way yes yeah that, was, that pressure is, is so powerful and when you're feeling stared at and we were we talk a lot about oxytocin and having to build the oxytocin and with the oxytocin you have your endorphins and we don't want adrenaline anywhere near and when somebody's telling you to do something well that's switching on your neocortex that's spiking your adrenaline because you suddenly i'm not doing it right what if they need to tell me how to to do this a natural function of my body <laughs> which is you know pushing can be very much like sneezing and it's just something that your body will naturally do but when somebody steps in and says hold on a minute you're not doing it right hold it hold it push when i say push and don't do, and it just stops people doesn't it yeah oh yeah and and not one minute you're told don't push because mm -hmm. it might be too early and the next minute you're told to go with your body and yeah. you're thinking hang on a minute do I go with my body or do I, but I was, I was going with my body and you were telling me that was wrong. So now I don't know what to do. And all that oxytocin right. going, this is all yeah. happening and that's what you need. Yeah. It seems um, backwards. Yes. But I don't know if you, for me, because I became a doula after I'd had um, four home births. Um, my first was born in a what we, it was called a home from home room in hospital. So now we'd probably call it an alongside birth centre. And then the first time I supported um, friends and family at birth, they were home births. The first doula, couple of births I did as a doula were home births. Um, so my first experience, it was a while before I had my first experience of a, a full hospital birth. The biggest shock to me was the amount of fear in the room, oh. not the woman's fear. Mm. She didn't have fear. She was well supported. But the fear of the practitioners, the doctors and the midwives, I, 
hope that the woman found more, you know, having good birth partners can help protect you and you've got your hormones can help you. But it gets, it seeps in, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. My first experience as a doula was in a hospital. And I remember thinking this, this is not, this is not how it should be. And then after that, moving into more of the home birth doulaing, which is just, I love, I love it. And then going into free birth doulaing as well, which is a whole different experience. It's, it's really incredible how one thing that a healthcare practitioner can say can change the whole room. Mm. And once one health practitioner has a, a doubt or a niggle or, and I, I think a lot of the time it's, they see birth all the time. And I'm not sure how much debriefing they really get going from one birth to another. And so they hold on. I, we all hold on to things. But you see it quite a lot with healthcare professionals, especially midwives and doctors. And I think in a hospital setting, consultants are only there when there's a problem. So the minute they're called in, as far as they're concerned, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And that's what they're there for. So there's no yeah. physiological birth going on there. There's no natural birth going to happen because they're there because there's a problem, a perceived problem. With the midwives, I think what you're saying is right. They carry, they can carry in a fear, and that can just change the whole experience for everyone. Yeah, in fact, our um, we just had a change of head of midwifery, but the previous head of midwifery um, has said to me on a number of times that my role, she said, is to protect my midwives, and some of these situations can result in difficult situations for them to recover from emotionally and that's you know that that's very telling <laughs> um, but I think it does affect doctors as well so one of the things I do lots of work with women who've had a previous cesarean birth and are looking at what options what to do next time and because and they are meeting right there are options just because you've had one cesarean doesn't mean that you have to have another no and just or just because you've had two or three cesareans doesn't mean you have another i mean in this country if you've had one cesarean then it is likely that you you won't meet any opposition um in wanting a v-back um you just have to be warned that just because of a doctor may come across as being really supportive of v-back they're supportive of v-back on their terms so they may be really supportive of VBAC until you get to 40 weeks or 41 weeks. They may be really supportive of VBAC, uh, but as long as you are going to be continually stuck on a monitor, you know, continual electronic fetal monitoring with the pads, that you're going to come in early, that you're going to not eat and all these things. Um, but you will still find that they have a tremendous amount of fear. So uterine rupture is a scary thing for an obstetrician to deal with because you're dealing with both the, the life of the mother and the baby. Yeah. Um, and catastrophic uterine rupture is even less likely than um, there's, there's you know, different types of rupture um yeah. in terms of severity and how fast etc so that's really scary so they want to manage that anxiety they don't want to be in that position they would like to have control over that situation so they are thinking about it from that point of view what would they do if it was them their partner they would want to have that control um, and they don't consider anything else 
and they are very comfortable doing cesareans they're very comfortable doing continual electronic fetal monitoring they don't they are taught about um, intermittent monitoring with a handheld device either a doppler or a pinard they're 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 i don't know if they're taught pinard but they're definitely taught how to do um uh, or they call it auscultation don't they listening into the baby with a handheld device but they don't do it very much so they don't have a lot of confidence in it because it's not something they are familiar with but at the and at the same time they are not in with the woman all the time so they are not that for them to come in and see a nice long bit of paper now midwives as you know they record when they listen in they record it on a document but I think doctors trust the bit of paper more than they trust what the midwives have written so you when you are talking to these um, doctors who are um, you know they're in it they want to do good they want to help people but they're also human beings so trying to see that and recognize that some of the stuff that they are saying is coming from that place of fit, of dealing with their own adrenaline and their own anxiety, their own experiences, and that you that that is then influencing them and it's influencing the information that they give you. And one of the things I say to people is to try and turn it around that you they're not the person in charge they're not the person that is able to agree or disagree to your birth choices think of think of yourself as the owner of a company and that the obstetrician is somebody on your board of directors and they're probably going to be like the health and safety or the accountant they're mm -hmm. going to be the cautious one and um, so you can talk to them and ask their opinion and then decide well, because it's your company they can move to a different company but it's your company so you make the decision and if you feel that they're not aligned to your company and where you're what your company wants to be doing and going you can sack them and get somebody else in yeah. um, and it's just that change of you're not it's not saying that you're not going to listen to them or take their their information but there, there are other bits of information and other people and other points of view um, that are important. Yeah, and we go back to the information. This is your birth, your body, your baby. You are in charge here. But when you don't have the information, it kind of spreads through everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a VE. You don't have to have a VE. What? Yeah. I don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah, and even understanding not only do you not have to have it, but there isn't any research to show that having routine vaginal examinations um, is of benefit. That the um, a lot of hospitals have a policy of vaginal examinations every four hours, um, even though there's no research behind that. And there was an interesting article in the Ames Journal a few years back where Debbie Chippington Derrick had been on the committee at NICE um, for the, that was drawing up the guidelines for cesarean section. And they looked at, one of the things they looked at was how, you know, how, reg, how often should um, they be offering vaginal examinations. And there was no, 
they looked and found no research that, that routine pedagogical examinations improve outcomes. The doctors refused, they, the doctors on the committee wanted every two hours and refused to sign off unless they had um, every four hours. So the gu NICE guidelines even don't actually even say every four hours, they say no more frequently than every four hours. And it's understanding sort of the value of a vaginal examination. What information is it giving you that is not just about dilation? So sometimes a vaginal examination can be really useful to understand that the baby's mm -hmm. quite high, that the baby's got his head to one side, um, but that routine vaginal examinations aren't of benefit. And, um, and then a lot of midwives don't realise that. And there was the whole idea of, I get, I get, I don't really worked out with this whole measuring birth by numbers. So how yeah. many centimeters dilated you are, how long your contractions are lasting, how far, how, what's the gap in between them? Um, and, you know, how long is your cervix? Um, and actually a lot of this information isn't relevant if everything is you know if stuff is progressing um there was an article in a magazine by a midwife who was visiting a country in africa and um they the women were laboring outside the clinic and then would be brought in when they were starting to um starting to push and they weren't having any vagina examinations and the UK midwife was like, well, how do you know that they are fully dilated? You know, how do you know? And the, the midwife said, well, we can see the head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with the information? How useful? And it, it's taking the information. We talk about birth of what can be measured from the outside, not actually what's going on inside. So how many women have you spoken to who've been told you can't be ready to push because you were only three centimeters half an hour ago yeah and so the the information that comes from measuring is valued more than the information that the women are saying and we have it's like women don't have any information to give at all and we have information and we need to value the information women and birthing people um, we need to value the information. We know how our body works. If we've given birth before, then we know what worked for us, what didn't work for us. Um, and we also know what our baby is saying. It's, it's amazing. Instincts are very powerful in birth, aren't they? We are mammals. Absolutely. And how many, I mean, I've supported somebody who was so dead set on a home birth. She'd been in labor three hours and went, I need to go to hospital. Something's not right. You know, um, people who, uh, one woman who started doing lunges mm. um, and baby mm. hand wasn't moving down and she just started doing lunges, just like one foot out the front and leaning forward into it. She said, I don't know why I'm doing these, but it feels good. <laughs> and I thought yeah. that's my mantra, do what feels good, because generally mm. that's what you need to do. And it turned out when the baby came out to have a little, what they call a kaput, a little swelling on their head, baby's head had been wonky her doing um lunges um and it's so it's incredible how much information that we have we have to value that um 
and we know that that you know the every time they do a, a report into um, stillbirth, one of the main things comes out is that um, the women were telling their health practitioners that something wasn't right, yeah, and they weren't listened to. Mm. And even with that, so it's taken on board, but now women are being told, right, every episode of, of low movement, you must you must come in. And it's all the wrong way around because what's happening is women are going, oh, I've got to be a good baby. My baby hasn't moved for a, whatever time. I'm not actually worried about it, but I've, told, I've been told I must go in. Yeah. So then they go in, baby's fine. They weren't worried anyway because they knew it was just probably a change. And I'm not saying don't go in. Um, but then they they do that a couple of times because they're they're anxious and they want to be doing everything right and then they find that they can't get into the birth center and have their baby because they've got two episodes or in some cases one episode of um, reduced movements now you're on the high-risk pathway and they were only doing what they thought they should do as good parents they weren't doing it because they were worried about their baby's movements and we've if we've sort of turned it it's turned it around do you understand what I'm trying to absolutely yeah I yeah women don't seem to be trusted to understand what's going on with their bodies even though it's happening to them yeah so they didn't listen to her and she is the birthing person she can feel what's going on in her body yeah yes and that's not trusted yeah. by anyone except for you know the woman and and perhaps her doula I was told with my first baby that I wasn't in labor because I wasn't falling apart enough oh yes I've heard that well you're not making yeah. enough so you can't possibly yeah, yeah. and I don't <laughs> I don't I'm really and I had I hypnobirthing birthing wasn't a thing then but I was you know I was doing my I was doing my breathing and my relaxation I was on top of it I was in control um yeah I had an and experience with a silent birther so somebody who just would go inside really insular and birth and I remember the midwife standing there going well she can't be this is just taking forever forever she can't be anywhere near close and I remember going um actually she's in transition right now because she looked up and she went oh and I, went, oh, I think she's transitioning and the middle was like no that's not right and then literally within five minutes we were like okay baby's coming head yeah head. <laughs> yeah it's crazy but I've even uh, been with and I yeah I can share this story it's um I have permission to share this story because it's, it's a cracker I was with somebody and um they decided to go to the birth center um we got stuck in traffic it was rush hour on a monday morning and she obviously was just cracking on really fast and and it's only a 10 minute drive but it was taking us 20 but even then she her waters went in the car and she was starting to push and i phoned i i was in the car her partner was driving and i phoned and said you know she's gone she's starting to push and we were met in the car park with a a wheelchair and a delivery pack all ready to go and she couldn't sit on the chair because the baby was there so we her partner and I like one army almost carried her in unfortunately we're into the straight first into the straight room 
and the bed was down low and I said oh can we get the the bed up because she likes to lean forward and the midwife said oh but I just need I just like to examine her I just like to pop on there because I'd like to examine her because I need to know that she's in labor (laughs) 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 she's like yeah what and I just said I can assure you she is in labor leaned over pushed the bed up myself I'm not having any of this nonsense and she she then as soon as the bed was at the height that was comfortable for her she leaned on it and went and the midwife was like oh I'll open my delivery pack then and five minutes later baby was there and it's just like it's all these rules and because that was the policy the policy was to somebody come in the birth center to give them a vaginal examination check their neighbor and there's no room for individual differences and women don't realize what these policies these policies are birth plans they're the birth plan that has been decided for you by um a committee of midwives and doctors looking at population level data, research of varying levels of quality. And we know that obstetrician, Dr. Amali Lokogamaj looked and found that only nine to 12% of um, recommend, recommendations from the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists relating to maternity, only nine to 12% were based on top quality evidence. So. Some of these guidelines, these policies are based on um, not good evidence. Some of them are just based. And then even when there is recommendations, those can be um, overridden by the wishes of the people drawing up these guidelines. So it is worth knowing what those guidelines are. And this is why it's worth writing a birth plan. If, If because you need to decide which of those things because there is already a birth plan (laughs) it's not and I think it doesn't matter whether you call them birth preferences or birth plans because it's the same thing exactly the same thing um just words are different (laughs) so call it what you like um but know that there is a birth plan and therefore make find out and if there is if it's what you want to do then you don't need to make a change but you need to say where you want things to be different you need that information yes and it's guidelines which is yes. a really important word because it's not set in stone it's not you know guidelines are guidelines that you're meant to be able to ebb and flow but we do see a lot of hospitals say right well that's the guideline and that's what we're going with and like you say there's no individualized care there not everybody fits into the pretty little box that's perfect no, and yet better births tells us that individualized care is safer. Yeah. And sometimes it's about who you talk to as well. So the midwife, your community midwife might not, ha- although she should, she actually should listen to you mm-hmm. and um, she should make individualized um, plans with you and give you individualized care but sometimes they don't feel they have the power and they feel that they are under pressure um, to get to get you to conform 
um, and they can sometimes have censure, um, both um, overt and covert, um, whether in terms of bullying or um, actually um, being properly reprimanded. Uh, so it's worth going up, don't always take just because your midwife says, um, no, <laughs> go up. Mm. And just yeah. because your obstetrician says no, that doesn't mean to say that you can't. And I think this is, you know, individualized um, with the care providers, isn't it? You can yeah. get someone who will say no to this, and then you say, well, I want to speak to somebody else. And they go, well, of course you can do that. And then well, you're like, oh my God. Well, I have had two clients who had similar experiences with different doctors and midwives. Both of them had an appointment where there was a midwife and a doctor. And both times, the midwife and the doctor, when they were together, were sticking to the hospital line saying it was both, mm -hmm. they both wanted home births outside of guidelines. And both times they were saying, well, we will support you, but we recommend that you are. And both of them had the experience of being left in the room with the doctor who said, go for your home birth, it'll be great. And then later being left with the midwife or walking out with the midwife who said, go ahead with your home birth, it'll be great. And it's like they both wanted to say, go ahead with your home birth, it'll be great. But they felt constrained to be seen mm. to be doing the hospital policy. And it's kind of crazy, yeah, right? It's crazy because, yeah. And that's where litigation things. But I'm talking about policies. One of the big, you know, beat going back to the um, women who had a previous cesarean. Mm. Um, I support a lot of people who have had a previous cesarean and looking to plan a VBAC. I do VBAC workshops and I've got a, a HBAC free. A vaginal birth after cesarean. Yes. And you also support yes. a lot of HBACs. Yes. There are home birth after cesarean birth. Yes. And one of the things that a lot of women, I mean, there's such a huge variety, not all VBAC, women going for VBAC, we all have different, we're all going to make different decisions based on the same information, because otherwise we'd all be driving the same car, you know, we all, um, but a lot of the women who've had a previous cesarean want to give their, give, if they're planning a VBAC, they want to give it their best chance of it ending up as a VBAC. No. I don't like using words such as achieved or successful VBAC because that sounds like it's um, a test or something and it's it's not you can do everything you, you possibly can and still end up with another cesarean birth that's the way it goes sometimes um, and so it's not a there's no judgment um, but a lot of them and it makes sense to, if you're planning a VBAC, for it to have the biggest, do what you can to make it as, make it end up as a VBAC. Um, and that research, there is good quality research that says that that gives the best outcomes for babies. But yet, if you look what the hospital policy is, the, the standard care for somebody having a VBAC in hospital or having a VBAC is everything that would increase the chance of ending up with a cesarean. So going into hospital early, that increases your chance of having a cesarean. Good quality research to that one. Good quality research to say that being stuck on a continual monitor, the electronic, the pads, 
increases your chance of ending up with a cesarean. Not eating and drinking in labour increases your chance of having a, ending up with a cesarean. Um, uh, being on time, having strict time limits over first stage of labour, second stage of labour. Um, these are all things that increase your chance of ending up cesarean and so therefore reduce your chance of having the feedback that which rolling is ball of interventions isn't it yeah and these are because the only a lot of the time medical care seems to sort of distill issues down to one issue so with with feedback the only thing they're thinking about is watching for a uterine rupture and being able to deal with it and giving so giving birth on a consultant led unit also increases your chance of ending up a cesarean so and that's um standard policy now it's it's good quality research to say it includes in, increase your chance of having a cesarean really really low quality no evidence to say that it would improve outcomes for babies um and in fact so there it has been research out very recently which backs up previous research from the birthplace study showing that um, planning a home birth after a previous cesarean birth increases your chance quite dramatically of having that for, for the birth ending up as a vaginal birth and doesn't increase the chance of your baby um, having problems and needing special care. Isn't that and the H-back the versus the V-back and the outcomes? But we see that across the board. Um, we see it, um, but yeah, we see it across the board. And a lot of women who've had a, I mean, various reasons people have had a cesarean, and sometimes people haven't laboured at all. Um, they've had elective cesareans first time round, baby was breached, whatever. Um, but a lot of people who have laboured before, when they talk about their previous birth, and they had a cesarean because they but labor stalled and they didn't dilate and they didn't push and then they tell you how many times they have vaginal examinations how many people came into the room how many times they were told they were worried about the their baby's heart rate um how many times they were told hours and you need to be doing this by then and um and it's no wonder that actually their body shut down. They couldn't do it because they weren't given, they weren't given the environment. Back to that woman doing this, yeah. who couldn't, who whose baby didn't come out because it her body, her even because even when we our cerebral cortex thinks we're safe, it's we don't give birth to our cerebral cortex, we give birth with our our reptilian brain down here and so that bit needs to feel safe yeah and that bit can be triggered by all the things we said the sights the sounds and if if the cortisol is flowing here then then birth's not going to happen and flow as easily yeah i was one of those um with my first birth i labored for four days and i didn't have the information and i was put on my back I had a back-to-back -back baby, I was put on my back and I was given exams and I didn't know I had a choice. And it was a rolling ball of interventions. I was given this, I was given that, I was told to do this, told to do that. Never was I told to move. 
Never was I told I was allowed to move once being on a monitor. Nobody said, you know, you can get up and walk around if you want to. No, no, no. They just said, there you go, stay there. So I thought, oh, well, I have to stay here then. Um, it's that rolling ball of interventions. And when there's no information or the selection of information that's being offered to you is so small, how can we make a truly informed decision on this process when we don't know? Yeah. And myself, it possibly you, so many of us, we go into childbirth assuming, I remember just thinking, well, they'll do everything, they, the midwives and doctors will do everything they can to help me have a straightforward birth. Yep. And actually, they did everything they could to derail my straightforward birth um and that's when you can almost feel like you're in a twilight world um mm. uh, because whether or not you went to classes your body's telling you to do things how many women say i it felt wrong to be on the bed i just wanted to move or um this is like the worst position to be pushing in and uh, i just i wanted they kept talking i wanted them to be quiet the light was too bright um i just wanted to go and, uh, the toilet was so comfortable um we have this is something i i haven't even heard midwives saying that actually there is this imperative in our in us that's telling us i need to do this mm. um, and i don't feel i need to get and that's why we want to go into hospital. If we're planning a hospital birth, we want to go into hospital early because we want to get to where we're going to give birth. Yeah. There's that drive to get there. And, and then we want to, to be able to be moved and to feel safe. And yet you're in this twilight world where what your imperative, your body's telling you to move, to turn, to rock, to sway, to, to get up. You can see in birth programs, you can see the women, they're, they're like lifting their bottoms up. Um, and you can see their instinctive yeah. instincts are telling them to do something. And yet all around you, there are people with the bright lights that are telling you, you know, no, you're not dilated. No, you've got to sit still or no, you've got to, well, the monitor, can, we keep losing it and they get cross with you and annoyed with wow. you. Um, we've lost the contact with the baby because you keep moving you need to stay still <laughs> and, it's just um, like, oh my gosh I remember being told uh, so my baby was back to back my first was back to back and I remember there was a point where I felt the need to push and I kept like I feel like I need to push you like I need to and they get well you're, you're like three centimeters for you don't push don't push and in hindsight, I wonder if I had pushed, if that pushing was me helping my baby turn. Yeah. And because yeah. I didn't push, and then I was sat on my back, did that inhibit that birth? Yeah. And, you know, from antidotal evidence now that I've seen with other people and, and clients, yeah. Yeah. That being told not to do what my body needed to do in the moments. Yeah. Not having the information and understanding that impacted that birth. And so then we go from somebody who has then has their birth impacted, who then finds mm. themselves um, in the stranded beetle position with their legs akimbo, with the whole world looking at their bottom, 
um, being told to put their keep their bottom on the floor when actually everything is telling them to tip their pelvis forward, who are being told that everything they know about what's going on inside their body is wrong, mm. who are being told that there's something, their baby's life is at danger. So now they're naked, they're uh, living in a twilight world where everything they think should be happening isn't happening. Uh, uh, uh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that they are, um, they're fearful of the baby's life. Mm. Um, and this is where birth trauma is. That actually now they have no control. Nobody's talking to them. They are completely vulnerable and fearful. And then they have the, the we damage their perineums, we give them the, um, episiotomies that tear we have the forceps or they have the cesarean and we say thank goodness you're in hospital we have saved your baby you have a healthy baby and this woman is now looking at this baby going I am covered I don't know what's just happened mm. I thought everything would happen to help me have a straightforward birth and now here I am and I've been through this traumatic event. I'm now meant to look after this baby and I'm shaky. I um, feel violated. Mm. I, uh, and we wonder, and then milk won't come in because of the knock-on consequences of, of that, all of that. They then can't sleep um, and they're being asked for, to measure everything except how much sleep they've had. They are told, that, you know, that um, I've been with women in postnatal wards and, you know, how much, how, when did you last feed the baby? How much do they feed? We need, we, we, the hospital need to see that you have, your baby has had a good feed, that you are therefore an adequate mother to take your baby home. Um, that, oh, you can't go home because you haven't done a poo. Well, I haven't eaten or slept in two days. And, you know, I know that when I get home in my own environment, just like going on holiday, you know, you mm. go on holiday. Within half an hour of coming home, everybody's done a poo. <laughs> um, and it's the same. You much more like to do a poo at home, but they want to make sure, you know, and it's just. And so then we're sending, we're, we're the baby, what they mean by healthy babies, the baby's alive. And that really is. That's really the bottom, very bottom line. We should be aiming much higher than that. Yeah. Um, and because that baby is not healthy if the mother's not healthy. Yeah. If the mother isn't feeling, if the mother is dealing with trauma, um, physical and emotional, it's much harder for her to care for that baby. If she hasn't had the hormones at birth, it's much harder for her to um, have that bond and then women feel guilty that they didn't love their babies instantly um, and they can carry that around for decades yeah. all their lives thinking there was something wrong with them that they didn't have that rush of love for their babies and actually it was because how the birth was managed um, yeah and so then you you know yeah. and then they've been told they've done everything wrong they did the birth wrong they fed their baby wrong they you know everything they they risk their baby's life with the giving birth so our uh, next time i'll just go for a cesarean or next time you know um 
you're risking a baby's life trying to breastfeed or next time I'm just going to formula feed um you know it's it's a snowball isn't it um it's not it's almost so I don't like to use the word normal but it's normal that that's the process of birth now that's what people yeah. expect and I hate the saying uh leave your dignity at the front door when you go into hospital because da 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 and I'm very much against that. No, 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 no. You should keep your dignity the whole way through. And if you have good healthcare providers and if you're well supported, then you will have your dignity all the way through. And that's important, very, yes. very important. But I think all of these processes impact parenting. Yes. You do a lot of um, feeding advice and moving on to solid foods and things like this. Do you see anything with the mums that you support where the more traumatic the birth, almost the less confident they are in themselves moving forward? Yeah, um, and actually I see it. Um, I, I definitely see it. I don't do as much breastfeeding support as I used to do, um, but I do do, and I think um, I see it on um, the retreat days I run and we're doing and you're working with women dealing with their their sense of self and their sense of self as a mother mm -hmm. um, but I think with the I do do and starting solids and maybe I'm starting solids and I think I have the same approach it's all about sharing the information and helping people decide and it sometimes it's the first time that anybody has said to them, this is your baby, here is the information, you know your baby. Um, they're still, we've still got this thing, um, we still hear health professionals saying it's six months full stop. Um, and women getting baby solid food a week before their six months, or not giving any till they're a week after, even though they're not showing any signs. Um, and it's, we come back, it's a bit like the due dates that mm. everybody should stick to, you know, your baby will be born on the, um, that there is, there's a huge developmental difference. We wouldn't, ex we don't expect all babies to walk at the same time. We know that all babies roll at different times so they they are going to be ready for solid food at different times and the the guidelines don't say at six months the guidelines say around about six months um not before four months follow your baby and look for the signs that they're ready and by signs of readiness they are the signs that physical changes have taken place inside their body so there's lots of myths around the signs as well. Um, people talk about, oh, grabbing food off the plate. Well, that's not a sign. It's not a, um, they grab your hairbrush, they grab your remote control, they grab your phone, they, you know, you've got it, they want it. Babies don't know that food tastes nice and they don't know it's going to stop them being hungry. They are just learning. And so taking, grabbing food off your plate is a good that they're getting sign they're getting towards that but there's not the physical changes that have happened um, the physical changes are that they can sit up so they're back straight um, that they might topple over if they go and reach something but if you sat them down 
that they are um, able to look at something, pick it up and put it straight to their mouth. So not put it and then go, where is it? You know, um, and then it gradually, you know, accidentally ends up in the mouth. It's an it's an accuracy thing, the eye hand coordination. Um, and it's that they lose the tongue thrust reflex and that could the NHS has moved to talk about they can move the food around and then swallow it and that can be a bit confusing for parents I think because sometimes it's just reduced down to that they can swallow and babies have been swallowing milk so I explain it that it is it's like when you try and put cowpon in your baby's mouth and you know how hard that is and they, they push it out with their tongue you can't even get the syringe in because the tongue thrust reflex is a protective mechanism that stops babies choking. And they lose it around about five months, but it's, you know, sometimes it's nearer six or later. Um, when those three things happen, that's the point at which babies, if in the wild, as it were, would see an insect or a berry on the floor, pick it up, put it in their mouth. And when they can, so you can let your baby explore and play with food just as long as it's soft, but it's when they can, when, because if they pick it up and they, they won't get it in their mouth, you know, they might just mush it on their face. If they did accidentally get it in their mouth or did get it in their mouth on purpose, if they still got the tongue thrust reflex, they'll move it around for a bit and then they'll push it out. Right. If they can pick it up themselves, put it into their mouth, move it around and swallow it, then they're ready. Makes so sense. it looking for that, that seems much more clearer than doing again by numbers <laughs> or times. And um yeah, I've been doing workshops that have been I started doing them. I used to manage a short start children's centre. Um and the the information that parents were getting from health visitors was only about baby led weaning at six months. Um, they parents wanted more. They want to explore. They want to understand why. Why were these things suggested? Because when you understand why, um, then that helps that you. Knowledge, isn't it? Having that knowledge base. Yes, yes, and that um, you know, giving them the the confidence that they can trust their baby, trust themselves to know their baby. Um, and that they, you know, there's all this, there's so many silly stuff around that, you know, give your children, because well, yes, give your children um, green vegetables first, um, so they don't get a sweet tooth. I say, have you ever tasted breast milk? It's the mm. sweetest thing you've ever come across. So babies have a sweet tooth. Yeah. Um, but actually what you can do if you particularly if you're waiting and you can do finger foods and baby led weaning you're not just giving them one food you're giving them a variety that's normal eating yeah um and um one of the things that happened when so the world health organization hasn't changed its recommendations for um starting solid food ages since 1994 so back then they said not before four months, around six months. And but the UK then we were doing three months. <laughs> and so the um, I don't know who decided that they said we'll do it at four months. 
So we were all told at four months. And then later on, the evidence was even stronger to wait till six months. So it's the UK changed um, what they were saying. But what happened was what you do with a when you're introducing solid food to a four month old, one food at a time um, and wait a few days. Um, start with soft food, you know, start with purees that just got lifted up and put to six months. The same right. way to do it, but just do it at six months when the babies are different. So you can just start with spaghetti bolognese. You don't have to do. And the whole baby rice, um, that, that's fascinating. So the baby rice thing comes from when a babies originally weren't given any solid food till they were at least one, more like 18 months they were just breastfed and that's where we get weaning came comes from because it was a time when you weaned off breast onto solid food um but the industrial revolution meant that some babies were weaned earlier because of women working in the in the factories um and so they would be given what was called pap or sops and that was um and those babies didn't do very well it had a quite high mortality rate unfortunately mm-hmm. but it was decided that as sops, as the sops were replacing milk, they had to have two criteria. It had to be white because milk was white, and it had to um, be bland because they thought that breast milk was bland. And so that, that's where baby rice comes from. It's white and it's bland. I don't believe and... anything back then tasted breast milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is this is because it was the men were starting to take over and tell oh, women how to bring up babies you see this is all from um this is all from from then um i was listening to dr helen ball from the sleep and she was talking from the durham university sleep um clinic um and she was talking about how it was the men in the late 80 late 19th century and into the 20th century and um, that started the t- taking over the um responsibility for how babies should be brought up and making it more mechanical and scientific um and you know less of this shilly shally female thinking you know um and the same happened with the same happened with um weaning and starting solids and it is taking us the same happen with carrying our babies Mm. the same happen with birth (laughs) and it is taking taken us over a hundred years um, to actually that we have the knowledge and we just need to be sharing this knowledge (laughs) so that we can all and and we are a lot of unlearning yeah. I remember my mom and my nan said to me when my eldest was about four months you feeding him baby rice just put it in in the bottle with with milk just yeah because then he'll sleep and it's yeah, that, yeah. you know yeah. it's still so prevalent so yes having these conversations and people like yourself sharing this amazing knowledge is so important right now it really mm. is yeah, and then and we are seeing a change, I think. Well, seeing a change in good and for bad. <laughs> it's 
slowly we're getting there it's slowly going yeah I think I was lucky I came from a long line of strong matriarchal women and who passed on a lot of stuff to me that I am now passing on um so yes yeah thank you so much for joining us and telling us giving us all this information thank you thank you so important thank you for having me we've we've covered quite a range of different topics haven't we we have now i have to think of a name for this episode (laughs) (laughs) it's been fabulous talking to you and i'd love to speak to you again sometime i'm sure there's lovely conversations that we can have thank you thank you very much carly